Well, we're going to carry on in our uh, study of the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, between verses 17 and the first verse of chapter 4. And I entitled this Bible study, Jesus Style. Now, last week we were studying in chapter 3, and we looked at Paul's instruction to us to put on, as he used the term, various character graces that he described in the chapter as followers of Jesus Christ, much like someone would put on clothing. And, and of course, we know that what we, what we wear on our bodies conveys to others a sense of, of style or lack thereof. Uh, it tells others where we come from, um, who we are. And in the same way, what we exhibit in our character also communicates to others that we are God's elect, that we are set apart as his beloved. You might say that when we wear the garments of mercy and kindness and humility and meekness and forbearance and forgiveness and love and peace, we exhibit the Jesus style. And when we fully embrace this style in our lives, we should see clear evidence of it in the relationships that matter the most to us, the relationship with our spouses, the relationship with our children, the relationship with the church, the relationship even at work. And, and so this should, be, this should be the style by which we go through life. Bible teacher and author Gail Irwin, he wrote a book, I have a copy right here, called The Jesus Style. I have several of these on my bookshelf, and I picked up this one because I remember the book well. And, uh, and when I opened it, I realized this wasn't the one I read because it's brand new. And when I opened it, I saw that Gail Irwin actually signed this book for my parents. It says, Rick and Bunny, thank you for sharing this great journey, Gail Irwin. I didn't know, but he wrote this book and he describes the, the distinctive manner in which Jesus lived his life. And in the book, Gail describes uh, that by the standards of the world, Jesus's kingdom is what I prayed about earlier today. It's an upside down kingdom. Most kings, right, they, they lord over their subjects. They require their subjects to serve them. They require that maybe it even be necessary that their subjects die for their kingdom. But in Jesus' kingdom, the script is flipped. Jesus Christ came to serve us. Jesus Christ ultimately died for us. And this idea of dying to oneself and living for others is really the hallmark of the Jesus style, isn't it? And so we're going to really focus in on these aspects, these relationships, the husband-wife relationship, the parent-child relationship, and then the employer-employee relationship. The context change, but the principles, the garments, if you will, stay the same. So if you would, please stand with me, and we're going to go ahead and just read the whole of what we're going to um, cover this morning. And we're going to pick it up in verse 17 of chapter 3. And read over to verse 1 of chapter 4. Here's what it says. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, 
Obey in all things your masters, according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we pray, Lord, that these character garments, if you will, these character graces that we'd studied last week, things like love and peace and kindness, Lord, that these things would be evident in our lives, not because we have to focus on putting that out there so that we look good to other people, but Lord, because they just spring from our heart, because our hearts are inhabited by you. And so this morning, Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit who lives in us would open our understanding that we might receive the advice from your precious word, Lord, and that we could move further along that road of sanctification such that we would truly live in the Jesus style in all the relationships in our lives. Lord, as your servant this morning to speak these words to your precious people, Lord, I pray that nothing would issue forth from my heart or my lips, but that which you wish for them to hear this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, you know, last week we actually finished with verse 17, but I brought it into this Bible study as well because what it states there is a foundational principle that then governs all of these different relationships. So whatever we do in word or deed, wow, that covers everything, right? Whatever we do in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through him. Now, People love to wear designer labels, don't they? Um, it's, it's almost gotten to the point where it's ridiculous. They have designer labels now for children. And most kids, uh, you know, you put on this cool thing and they immediately throw up on it and, and there you go. Um, but we as Christians, we, we, we wear the designer label of the designer of all things. What people see on us should not be some clever logo, some patch, uh, some name plastered on our jeans, by the way, does anyone know why they now sell jeans that are already ripped <laughs> and people buy them? I mean, I, well, anyway. Um, instead, through every word, through every deed we commit, everything that we are all about to Jesus Christ. To do all and to say all in the name of Jesus is to establish our identity in him. And of course, um, that's why we're called Christians. We're called Christians because we're followers of Christ. Now, there's another aspect about what verse 17 is telling us. That when we do things in the name of the Lord Jesus, we're actually being conferred authority. Here's what I mean. We are imparted authority because the word tells us that when we pray in the name of Jesus... He promises that that for which we pray will come to pass. This this is the way John the Apostle put it. And listen carefully to how this is, or actually this is Jesus speaking. It's in John's gospel. But this is the way Jesus rendered this grant, if you will, of authority that we have when we do things in his name. 
He says this in John 14, 13 and 14. He says, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Notice how he repeats it. He wants us to understand that if we ask anything in his name, he will do it. Now, this promise is very often misconstrued, and it's actually been weaponized by the prosperity gospel preachers. It's been perverted to lead people to think that whatever we ask of God, if we ask in enough faith, he will do it. And this, of course, is a perversion and a, a, uh, a, an omission of a key part of that promise of, or that grant of authority. The key part that's missing in the prosperity gospel is whatever you ask in my name. You see, when we ask something in God's name, to pray in the name of Jesus is to position ourselves to completely identify with him, not with us. See, this is to pray in his name is to take our eyes off of ourselves. To pray in his name is to be begging on the Lord that his will be done, not ours. And when we are able to put ourselves aside, again, it's that same phrase, die to self, and we focus on Jesus and we pray in his name because we know some things about him, don't we? We know that he's omniscient, so he knows everything. We know that he's perfectly loving and merciful, which means that whatever he wills in a situation is going to be for our good and for his glory. And so certainly we wouldn't want to interject the, the opinion or the desires of somebody who's, who's woefully deficient and even depraved, such as ourselves. No, we would want to turn our focus on the one who is perfect in his wisdom, in his truth, and in his judgment. And so when we pray in his name, when we do all things in his name, and I have presume that when we do things in his name, we're praying to him that, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. When we do that, we actually are agents for the enablement of God's will to be done on earth. This is why in the prophetic word, in the Thessalonian letters, the Lord, the Lord says that Antichrist will not appear onto the earth to bring hell on earth until... The restraining force is removed from the earth. What is that restraining force? It is the Holy Spirit working through the hearts and lives of believers who when they pray in the name of Jesus Christ, when they do as verse 17 says, do all in word or deed in the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus' influence is manifested on the earth. The day will come when that influence will be removed. And then and only then will Antichrist appear on the earth. Now the flip side of of what we know when we do all in word and deed uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is that whenever we say or do anything that I cannot associate with the name of Jesus Christ, I miss the mark that's labeled here, which means I sin. And so this idea, this idea of um, doing all in, the, in word and deed in the name of Jesus, this is the foundational principle. And we're going to find here that this Jesus style that's laid out here, it's all about others. It's all about other people. It's all about dying to self. In a word, it's all about love. Jesus would say in John 13, verses 34 and 5, 
a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the most important phrases that we have in that passage is one another. Love is the underlying principle, right? But the Jesus style is living one living our lives for one another. Now, it's interesting, in Gail's book, um, he, he speaks of this relationship that we have with God and his, God's desire that we live, just as verse 17 tells us, where all of our words, all of our deeds are done in the name of Christ. And as soon as you, you understand that we must do all these things in the name of Christ, you, you can apply your understanding of Jesus' life and what you see is, it was all about other people. In the, in the, on uh, page 40 of Gail's book, he, as he realizes that, okay, we're supposed to live the life that Jesus lived, what was that like? He lived for others. He went through the Bible. He collected all of these different phrases, places in Scripture that refer to one another. Here's just a smattering of them. We're to be kindly and affectionate to one another. In honor, preferring one another, of the same mind, one to another, not judging one another, following peace and edifying one another, receiving one another, admonishing one another, saluting one another with a holy kiss, having the same care one for another, serving one another, forbearing one another, and it goes on and on and on. And so the the sense that we get is, okay, the Jesus style means that we're putting all of our words and all of our deeds captive to the will of God. Our life should evidence his life. What did his life look like? It looked like a life lived for others and dying to self. That's what we're talking about here. So that's that's the foundation for all of these relationships that are now addressed in the text. And so we move now to the subject of Jesus's home remodeling business, which you would expect as a carpenter. He desires to remodel our homes, and that is by speaking into our lives how we should relate one to another. So verse 18, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, before I dive into parsing that particular verse, let me say this, because this is a hot button issue in our day. The importance of the home in our society cannot be overstated. You know, the very first institution that God created, it wasn't government It wasn't even the church. It was the family. The family, in God's order of things, is the basic building block of society. And this this has been evident throughout all of history. Uh, Leaders and governments ranging from Confucius, Marx, Lenin, Washington, Jefferson, all of them understood that as the family goes, so goes society. When a family structure is strong within the culture of a nation, the nation is strong. The citizens are well provided for. When the basic order and of the family falls apart, the society, the country, soon follows. Confucius was credited with this saying. He said, the strength of a nation derives from the integrity of the home. This is why... One of the hallmarks of totalitarianism, 
when a, when a man or a group of people desire to exert totalitarian rule over a people, the first, one of the first targets that they will go after is the family. When the Communist Party took over China, one of the things they worked hard and fast at doing was dismantling the family structure. All of a sudden, children became the wards of the state. Children were encouraged to turn in parents that were disloyal to the regime. And you look across the world and across the timeline of history and what you will find, whenever a, a, a despotic ruler inserted himself over a people, it always came at the expense of two things. We talked about this in our Live Not By Lies conference. God and family. And those two, in the Lord's design, go together. And when the family structure is dismantled, the fabric of society starts to unwind and unravel. And not to get into a whole different topic, but I want you to understand that many of the things we've been preaching about here and in other places are warnings that these kind of things are happening in our midst. We're seeing it loud and clear in, in, the, in the milieu of public schools, aren't we? Where we're seeing now that the state believes that the responsibility, the principal stewardship of the education of our children lies with the state. There have been some politicians who have been so bold as to look people in the eye and to say that parents should not be telling the schools what to teach their children. And you see that this has caused um, school boards around the nation to erupt in all kinds of controversy and anger on the part of people in that school district because our culture, our society is built on the strength of the family. And that starts with the authority of parents over children, which we'll get to in a moment. But I want to just state that because I want you to understand that even though each one of these things is addressed in a mere verse, these principles are so vitally important because they speak to the heart of what keeps a family together and operating correctly according to God's design, okay? So we read here, wives submit to your husbands as is fit in the Lord. As further evidence that uh, there are forces in our world that are trying to dismantle our society, that very statement uh, would have, if I was out on a street corner making this point, I'd have eggs and other things thrown at me. <laughs> Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, this is a companion verse to, to um, verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 5, where it says there, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. And for the ladies, uh, this is Jesus' style in action. And I know it's, it's very culturally incorrect that uh, women of our day would, would take this verse on board and say, yes, that, that's what I, I must do. Because we, we have a feeling that to submit oneself to another person means that we are going to be completely enslaved to that person, that we are going to be controlled by that person. And we're going to get to the husbands in a minute, but I want to assure you that's not necessarily what it means. But I want you to also notice that neither this verse in our text, why submit your own, to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord, and also what I read out of Ephesians 5.22, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Notice that neither one of those verses, which speak to the same thing, 
Give as a justification for submitting to your own husbands any of the merits of your husband, if there are any. No, it's not based upon the, that the husband is deserving necessarily of your submission. Not to say that he is or he isn't. I hope that he is. But it's based upon being submitted to the Lord. You see, if you submit as a wife to your husband, you're doing it because that is a form of submitting to the Lord. Now, now how could those two things possibly be related? Well, we know very clearly from Scripture, uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3. Well, I'll get to that in a minute, but 1 Corinthians 14.40, God says, let all things be done decently and in order. Our God is a God of order. You know, there are those that think that whenever the Holy Spirit shows up, that chaos ensues. That the Holy Spirit is a God of chaos or, or just winging stuff. That's not the Lord. The Holy Spirit is the same God as the Son, is the same God as the Father. And our God is a God of order. And he establishes an order to things out of his divine wisdom and purpose. And this is what the Lord says in 1 Corinthians 11.3. He says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. So what we see there clearly, and by the way, if this sounds familiar when we were in Ephesians, it is. The same principles. What Paul is saying here in Colossians, he also said in Ephesians. What the Lord has done as he has established a hierarchy of authority. God the Father is head of Christ. Christ is the head of the man. The man is the head of the woman. This is the order that, that God created. Now you might say, well, but I thought there was no qualitative difference between man and woman. In the eyes of the Lord, there isn't. Man is not more valuable to God than woman. And to assure you that that's true, look at the full hierarchy. God the Father is the head of the Son. Wait a minute. Our God is one God, expressed in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are co-equal members of the Trinity. And yet the Father and his will is over the Son. Clearly then, the order that God has created is not based on a qualitative difference between the constituent parts of the two halves. Father and Son, they're equal. Man and woman, they're equal in the eyes of God. The order is in order to bring about a desired result that God has purposed. That's it. I mean, it's not ever that we should think that because wife is commanded to submit to the husband, that he, that he even possesses superior qualities to the wife. There are plenty of marriages, some would argue most, where the wife, the, the capabilities of the wife exceed their husband in certain areas. In, in marital counseling, you know, when we talk about the practical stuff like managing finances and whatnot, and I say, well, wife, you're supposed to submit to your husband, so you got to let him handle all the finances. Well, that's nonsense. In some marriages, the wife is, is way more administra administratively gifted than the guy. And a good leader, the husband, if he's a good leader, he would realize that, recognize that, and he would make sure that their finances are in the hands of the most able of the two of them. That's just 
good management, right? And so this is not based upon the man is more qualified, the man has got more giftings, the man is this, the man is better. No, it is simply an order commanded by God that brings about a purpose and a result that's pleasing to him, okay? Which brings us to verse 19. Guys, listen up. Wives, wake your husbands up. This is important. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. Now, again, um, these verses are, are deceptive in their brevity, but every word counts. So we read here, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. That word love is the one we've got to focus on. We've focused on it together many times, but it's worth repeating. When, relative to Greek, English is very imprecise when it comes to matters of love. We have that word, love. Unfortunately, we overuse it or it, it, we use something that's in, uh, imprecise because we love pizza. We love ice cream cones. Everybody loves a puppy. And we love our wives. Clearly, the kind of love that we direct towards our wives is different than an ice cream cone. I had to ponder that for a while, but I concluded it was. <laughs> a wife, a wife. Um, yeah, the kind of love that is being talked about here, it's better that we look at the way Paul rendered it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, because there he puts some qualifier to it that helps us understand what he's talking about. In, in Ephesians 5, 25, he said, Husbands, love your wives, here it comes, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, to just rewind the tape a moment, when we were speaking about wives, submit to your husbands, the fear of, oh my gosh, I've got to put my life in the hands of somebody who uh, maybe in certain areas is uh, a little shaky or, or I just don't want to be ruled over by anybody. Move the tape forward. Now we're talking about a man who's going to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Do you have any problem with submitting to Christ? Do you have any problem with Christ's rule over your life? Do you have any doubts about Christ's character? Do you for a moment think that Christ is going to compel you to do something that is monumentally bad for you? No. And so what you have instead is a man who's going to exhibit love in the way that Jesus loves. And it's not the ice cream puppy uh, type of love. It is the Greek word agape, which you know well. And the best place to go to understand agape love is back in the love chapter. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I think I told you this before, but I was asked to read these verses at my brother's wedding, and I completely messed them up. <laughs> at that point, I thought, yeah, I should never be in the pulpit anywhere. This was before... Let's see, it was before I was even saved. So that explains that. Let's hope I do better this time. Here's what it says between verses 4 and 7. And actually the first uh, three words of verse 8. Loves, this is agape love now. Okay, men, listen up, because this is the way you're supposed to love your wife, okay? Love suffers long and is kind. Wow, we could stop there and scratch our heads. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. 
It is not puffed up, does not behave, behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Now, here comes the real culmination of it. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, ladies, when you consider a man who would love you that way, the submission part really takes on a whole different character because that kind of love is in itself a submission. I always explain Ephesians chapter 5 as the chapter of mutual, mutuality of submission. It is, it is a chapter that begins by talking about how love should govern all things, that essentially we should be living for one another, what we read right here, that we should be living one for another. And so a wife submitting to her husband who is dying for her is a great partnership. It's a great design. It's one that our culture has trampled on, has perverted, has maligned, has created this impression that women, if you go with that program, you're weak. When in fact, for a woman to live in this order is to make her character rock solid. And for a man to love his wife as Christ loved the church is to be one of the strongest men you'll ever find, is a man who, who can do that. Was Jesus weak? Meek is not weak. Jesus wasn't weak. He was the strongest man that ever lived. And that's the model that we, uh, we men need to take on. Now, here's, here to me is the proof positive that what is being spoken of here, men, is that we're to die for the sake of our wives. That is, die to self for the sake of our wives. Do you notice there in verse 19 of our text? It says, husbands, love your wives. Okay, I get that part. But then he tosses in, and do not be bitter towards them. Hmm. There's a lot of reasons why bitterness can grow in our relationships with anybody, and especially someone we live with in the same house all the time. But I believe that the Lord really has a very specific reason for, for latching on that warning against bitterness with the phrase, husbands love your wives. Here's what I mean. And, and again, we're going to attach it to the more fuller exp explanation of the command in Ephesians chapter 5, where we're told that men were to love our wives as Christ loved the church. So let's use... The example of Christ and his bride, the church. And let's go to the most uh, climactic, uh, highest stake moment in Jesus's life on earth. Agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying, God, if there be any way that this cup could pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And what's the father's will? What does the father say? Essentially, he says, go to the cross and save your bride. Go to the cross and save your bride. Now, for us men, now we take it into the immediate context of us, 
there are going to be times, countless times in our lives where God is going to whisper in our ear, David, in this moment, I need you to die for your bride. And I'm going to say, but Lord, but Lord, whenever you start with but and then Lord, but Lord, the game is on now. This World Cup match is never going to be played again. Or, but God, I don't feel like it. But God, she doesn't deserve that. But God, she offended me. But God, but God, but God. Which really has as an underlying message, but what about me? But what about me? But what about me? And because we as Christian men are hearing that from our God, David, I need you to die in this moment for your bride. I could be resentful of that. I could be bitter towards her. Maybe for whatever reason, the circumstances of your marriage, the personality of your wife, uh, something that's come into your life or into her life, all of a sudden now, her needs are off the charts. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a weakness in her character that God has called you to shore up. It could be a million things. But all of a sudden now, the rhythm of your life has changed dramatically because you need to die for the sake of your wife. And for a lot of men, that can make them very bitter. Maybe that the wife that they married, the wife of their youth, was this raving beauty. This man was so proud to have that woman on his arm because of the way she looked. Not the content of her character, the, way she, the pose she struck. Now, 20 years later, four kids, age, not necessarily the same outward appearance. And now this man is bitter because that arm candy that he thought he married isn't, in his mind, the same person. Now, that's, that smacks of shallowness ungodliness and it is and what we are called to do men is to die for our bride and not be bitter about it rejoice in it rejoice in it she's the daughter of the king and she has been called to be at your side in submission you have a stewardship there you have a ministry there. And so this is what God, this is what God commands for a wife and a husband. It's a perfect design that's been maligned terribly in our age. So we move on now to verses 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, I want to just read you um, a passage in 2 Timothy that says a lot about the challenges we face, both in our marriages and in the management of our families, our children. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, first five verses. These are the days in which we live. It says there, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come for men... <laughs> 
Couldn't say men and women. He had to say men. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. That spirit, which is the spirit of Antichrist, is alive in our world and thriving. The culture is messaging it. Schools are teaching it. Would you ever think you would live to see the day when people make a pretty good living being a social media influencer? Notice that the ones that are, have the boldness to call themselves social media influencers usually are influencing on topics that are very narcissistic. I haven't seen any social media influencers preaching die to self. Maybe they're out there, but they probably have, you know, uh, two subscribers <laughs> and one like. And this is affecting our children. Children, obey your parents in all things. The modern notion of child rearing seems to, seems to be heavily derailed by this notion of children's rights. Now, let me explain. When I was a kid, <laughs> I had the right to do exactly what I was told. I had the right to shut my mouth and listen. Those were children's rights in my day. <laughs> in this day and age, some believe that the rights of a child can supersede the authority of the parents. In fact, this is legislated in a lot of places. That child, children have rights. That children can actually get in touch with other adults who are not looking out for the interests of that child in the way a parent would and can... And can make decisions about their body within mere few years of being potty trained. And this is unbelievable that people in this world want to remove parental influence in the name of, we shouldn't be indoctrinating children. Really? Because if you tell me I can't indoctrinate my children, the next thing that will happen is that you will indoctrinate my children. The child needs to make decisions for themselves. Right. And you're going to take my child for eight hours a day and you're going to bring influences into their lives that I don't approve of. And so we wonder why there is such a crisis of children obeying parents. Do you realize, I saw this, this uh, video yesterday of the sheriff of Brevard County in Florida standing in front of the prison in Brevard County with the um, superintendent of schools and a couple of other officials. They have such a crisis in their schools, on their buses, of kids not only being disrespectful, but being downright dangerous to the teachers, the bus drivers, the cafeteria workers. They're getting bitten, scratched, bitten, punched, disrupting classes. And what's built into the discipline of the district 
is zero way, zero sanction to stop this nonsense. Kids are being trained not to obey their parents. Kids are being trained simply to question and to push back without any sense of context, without any body of experience, and without the understanding that with disobedience comes a hard life. When kids grow up not obeying their parents, they find it a lot more difficult to get by in the world. And this is, this is at epidemic proportions. And so when we say, well, okay, the kids aren't in here. Should we call them in? No, we won't. But, but are we raising our children in an environment where obeying you is not only in, uh, expected, but it's also enforced. It's also done in a consistent way. And that brings us to what Paul is saying with, uh, to us parents. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now that's, again, a very concise statement. The difference between correcting a child and frustrating a child is love. You see, when we approach a child who has done something out of, uh, out of bounds, shall we say, and we, and first of all, that, that presumes that we set boundaries, we set boundaries for our kids, when they act in a way that takes them outside those boundaries, we have a very important moment there. It can either be a moment of truth or a moment of, of injury to that child. When we see a child who's acting up or acting out or is, is crossing boundaries that you've set, we as parents have to direct our attention at what was done, not who did it. In other words, when we address the child who has now misbehaved, we cannot be bringing upon them condemnation. We should be acting much like the Holy Spirit. We should be pointing them to what they did and convicting them of the wrongness of it using the scripture as a yardstick. When we approach the child and convey anything that smacks of conditional love, I loved you until the moment that you disobeyed, and now I don't love you. Or when we convey the idea that because you are acting this way, I don't accept you, I don't approve of you. We do unbelievable damage to that child. We do what verse 21 is telling us not to do. We're provoking the child. Provoking them to what? Well, we could provoke them to a lot of things. Anger, worse behavior, depression, dejectment. You know, kids desire two things, really. They look for approval and they look for acceptance. Now, our streets are filled with gangs of various descriptions. Those gangs are populated by young people who did not have a home where they found acceptance and approval. And they were destroyed by that. And then along comes a couple of guys in the neighborhood who look tough, look cool, whatever. And they are given a proposition that you can be accepted, you can be approved if you become one of us. And many of these young people take them up on that. They do what is necessary to get in that gang. And their entire life is hijacked in violence and crime all because they were provoked by either a parent who's in the home mistreating the child 
or a parent who doesn't care enough about the child to even be there. And these are things that we have to be so very careful of because, you know, we're human too. And sometimes the things that our kids do can really anger us, really annoy us. And before we know it, we can be acting out in anger rather than step back. Remember, in this moment, I need to die to myself. In other words, I need to sub, subligate my, my emotion and my reaction to the good of this child. I need to be living for the other. And so you see how it applies in the children uh, context. And then we read in verse 22, bond servants obey in, in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, do heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Now let me stop there. Um, these verses sometimes trouble people because it would appear to them that the Bible is somehow um, turning a blind eye to or maybe even endorsing slavery. That people being subjected to another person's whim and will is a good thing. Unjustly, that is. That is not what the Bible speaks to. The Bible does not condone slavery in any fashion or form. In fact, if you do your history study, you'll see that the church and men like William Wilberforce and others were instrumental in undoing and doing away with that ridiculous, evil institution. When the Bible is speaking to people, it's speaking to us pretty much on the same plane, which is what's going on in your heart. Jesus Christ and his apostles never were political activists. They didn't seek to overthrow regimes. They didn't campaign for any kind of social justice or anything like that. They were concerned with one thing and one thing only. Regardless of what your life circumstances are, you need to give your heart to Christ. And once having given your heart to Christ, you then need to exhibit or live out Christ. And that's what this is telling us here. It's telling us that whatever your bondservant conditions are, whether it's to pay off a debt, whether you were part of a people that was conquered and brought into the Roman Empire, whatever the circumstances were. And theirs were really along economic lines, not racial lines. Uh, not to say that that's a good thing, but simply to say that there was a difference there. And what they're being told, these bondservants, is look, obey your masters as under the Lord. That is to say, do a great job as a witness for Christ. Don't just do things to make it look good, you know, pretend you're doing your job so your boss will approve of you. No, do an excellent job because it glorifies God. And this is the same way we should approach our employers. Some of you may feel like bondservants to your employer. Look at your paycheck, you say, I'm doing all this for that. But the idea is this, that when they see the excellence of your labors and they know you're a believer, they're going to associate the two. That's a witness. It's a lifestyle witness that's powerful. He goes on to say, but verse 25, but he who does wrong will be re uh, repaid for what he has done and there's no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair 
knowing that you also have a master in heaven. See, now he's speaking to the heart of the so-called master. And he's saying that, look, you have a master in heaven. He has requirements that he has laid upon you. He has a Jesus style that he desires in your life. Live that out to those in your employ. And this is something that's good advice for all of us, that people would want to work for you because they know that you have a higher authority in your life. And that authority is God. So that's, that's what the Lord is telling us, is that we should live in the Jesus style. What does that look like? Why it looks like his life. Dying to ourselves. Living for the other. Raising up the needs of others over our needs. Loving our wives as Christ loved the church. Submitting to our husbands as unto the Lord. As children, obeying our parents in all things. As parents, conducting the discipline of our children in such a way that we don't frustrate them, but that we grow them in the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. And Lord, you've given us these, these wonderful relationships in our lives. And, and these, are, these are to be blessings to us, not cursings or not difficult but that we should glorify you in the way in which we relate to our spouses, our children, our work environment, our church, our neighbors. When they see us, they should see you, Lord. These are hard things that in the flesh cannot be accomplished. And so we pray, Lord, that you would continue to help us to put down the flesh that rises up in us from time to time, that we might be fully available to the leading and guiding of your Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen.